0: Y'all
1: come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to in the corner back by the wood pile. I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on Episodes 84 and 106, I interviewed members of the Southern Gospel group, The Collegiates, one of them being my dad. Everyone in the group seems to be quite a storyteller, so I decided to chat with yet another member, Jim Loving. We'll try not to cover ground that's already been tread by Ronnie and Dave, so if you get confused at times, just go back to those episodes to figure it all out.
0: Oh, Jesus, my hand.
1: I Do you remember when you first heard Southern Gospel music? Well,
0: I actually heard it at uh, Richard Wilson's church. He went to Forest Hills Pilgrim Holiness Church, it was at that time. And every year they would have a group called the Glad Tidings Quartet. Richard was a strong Christian, and I was editor of the high school newspaper that writes. And he was my photographer, and we became pretty good friends, except I wasn't really serving the Lord at the time. But he invited me to go to that concert. That's the first time that I heard anything. I think that was either late 63 or early 64. The first professional quartet I ever heard, Richard also told me about that, and we went together to that. Coliseum there in Evansville. I think that building still exists. And they had a new group called J.Kiss and the Imperials. Don't you want to go to heaven when you leave
1: this world below? Don't you want to live in that city where there's happiness?
0: Jake had left the Statesman Quartet, which was kind of the peak of the pinnacle there in that southern gospel world at the time. But his idea was to put together kind of a state-of-the-art quartet, and he kind of picked and chose different people that he considered to be the creme de la creme, so to speak. And I was enthralled by that, and I bought an album that night. It was their first album. They only had one. And I still have that album. But I took that home, and my mother was struggling with her Christianity, too, and there was one song on there that captured her heart and mine, too. It was a song written by Whitey Gleason, uh, who later famously played with the Blackwood Brothers Quartet. He was a pianist. It was called Nobody. Nobody can my mother nearly played that uh, ad nauseum on our stereo there at home, So anyway, that's kind of the way it started. One of the most interesting things about that uh, concert or service at Forest Hills when I first heard the Glad Tidings Quartet, and by the way, I grew up in a Christian church. We sang a lot of familiar songs that that these groups would incorporate into their music somewhere along the line, but I never had heard of uh, Southern Gospel Quartets until then. And they had recently, the Glad Times had recently lost their piano player. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But they still had a piano with which they were singing. And, of course, the technologies were pretty primitive in those days. And after the service, Richard and I went up there, and the guy who sang tenor had gotten a previous piano player to record all of their songs, put it on tape. And so he had hooked up it looked like a, a piece of fishing line to the I guess it was the clutch on the recorder and he literally had a lead weight that you use in fishing you know what I'm talking about yeah, yeah sure and so he would release that and the tape would begin while he was standing there it was hardly noticeable and then when the song finished he would pull it back and he had a little slot there that he, he would put the, the lead until they were ready for the song. And then he he would release it. It's hard for you probably to imagine, but it was quite crude that it worked. All the way. If the
1: Lord wasn't walking by my side every day, I'd be, I'd be all alone and blue. I'd be helpless, I'd be helpless, wouldn't know what to do. But well, I don't know, I don't know just what I do. And if the Lord wasn't walking by my side every day,
0: by
1: my side. When did it enter your head to form your own group? I think it was that spring or summer
0: that Alfred Case, uh, the pastor of Forest Hills, left. And he uh, wanted to see me and Richard one day. And he wanted to put together a quartet to sing at his tent meetings. He was going to go around... Different places and have tent meetings. He was quite an articulate speaker. And so uh, Richard said, Sure, I'll try to put it together. So he just started calling around to different churches. He was the one who contacted your grandpa and found out about Dave. And he found out about Steve Camp from Clyde Dupin, who was pastoring, I think it was Trinity Wesleyan on the east side there of Evansville. And Steve Gerby went to uh, North Park. Uh, Pilgrim Holiness Church. He got all of us together, and we started playing different recordings of the Statesmen, the Blackwood Brothers, and all those groups. You know, and we sort of were bitten by the bug. Some of us more so than the others. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> I think your dad was. He always had a sense of humor, and he was pretty whimsical uh, all the time about most things. And as he said, he was probably just along for the ride, but. Uh Uh, He enjoyed it. Your dad is quite competent when it comes to singing harmonies. I don't know if you know that, but, you know, he hasn't given himself the credit that he deserves. I want to tell you this, though. When we first started the group, we had to have a picture taken. Because the Glad Tidings Quartet had a picture taken, and all their information was on the back, etc., you know. When we went to the studio, and had the picture taken, and your dad didn't smile on a single one of those proofs. He was as straight-faced as one could be, and we literally had a guy at Keller Crescent Printing Establishment there in Evansville drew a little smile on his face. I don't know if you've ever seen that photograph we have on those gray 60s suits with those fake velvet collars.
1: I remember seeing that picture, and I thought my dad had lipstick on. So now that you tell me what you tell me, that makes better sense.
0: Yeah, uh, because somebody had told us that Southern Gospel scene groups always need to be smiling in photographs because <laughs> they're expected to be happy. <laughs> and so we had a smile painted on your dad's photograph. <laughs> I've never heard that, it's great <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny
1: Well, I'm going to travel no more When I reach that golden shine. I'm going to never love for this world again Not in a million years Well, my time is short and my way is
0: narrow A heavy cross Have to carry, sometimes stumble Under my load of care
1: But then I get a glimpse of my Savior's face He lets me know he's prepared a place Where I'll never, ever, ever, ever toil again Not in a million years my dad asked me to bring up a couple of subjects that maybe you could expound on. So the first uh, thing he told me to ask about was the bus mechanic. Uh, is it Bill Springer?
0: It was Bill Springer. He became a great friend of ours. He allowed us to park our rig there. Bill was a tinkerer. He liked to tinker with things. and So that bus had an old Buick straight-eight engine in it. It was a piece of junk when we bought it. And... Uh, We had all kinds of trouble with that. He kept trying to keep the thing running. It broke down in Flora, Illinois one year and then towed. Some guy supposedly fixed it over there and didn't do anything. But somehow Bill Springer found an old Buick straight-eight engine and he reworked it. He was so proud of that. He put that engine in that, that bus. I think it lasted for a year or two. I can't remember. Really? But now your dad on the road was the go to guy for anything that went wrong. We were coming back from someplace in Kentucky, and Harold Ellis, a good friend of mine, was filling in, I believe, for Steve Gruby or Steve Camp. I can't remember which one. But anyway, we were coming across the Henderson Bridge there over the Ohio River. The bus engine the wiring caught on fire on top of the bridge in the middle well your dad ran back and he had sense enough to have a fire extinguisher on there and he managed to put that fire out now you can imagine traffic is coming at high speed behind that that bus so harold and i ran down that bridge all that traffic coming out and waved them over I can't remember if we had flares or not. But somehow, your dad, with his electrical expertise, rewired that so that he was able to get it started, and we got it on home. That bus was interesting because of your dad. He even had an intercom on there. He put in an intercom that connected to the back of the bus where where the bunks were. We were really big time, <laughs> Till my Lord came into view Till there was Jesus Wonderful Jesus He came into my heart and made it for you
1: Okay my dad also asked me to ask about Richard steaming his hair.
0: <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. I, I don't know if I want, want to tell the origin of that or not, but whenever we were supposed to leave out for a date, we'd go and pick up Richard, and he was always late. So one day, we were went over there. And we were running late already. He was in the bathroom taking a bath. It seemed like hours. He knew we were there waiting. And so we were thoroughly agitated when he came out. We asked him what, what he was doing in there in that bathtub all that time. he said, I was steaming my hair. <laughs> <laughs> now, what that means, <laughs> I, we I don't think we ever knew we made a joke of it after that, because anytime we'd go to get him, we'd have to say, you know, we've got to make, make sure we plan for Richard Seaman's hair. I'll never forget that
1: wonderful hour. I felt his power. Jack Keene? Jack Keene
0: was a promoter in Boonville. He scheduled us to sing over there with the with the Florida Boys. <laughs> now, you have to keep in mind, this was the uh, heyday of a television program called the Gospel Singing Jubilee, and it was big. We would listen to it and watch it, you know, and the Florida Boys were one of the main groups on that. We thought those guys were like, the Saints because we thought they were more like Billy Graham characters anyway we were backstage with the baritone singer I, I better not mention his name he picks up a microphone and he says testicles testicles <laughs> whoa <laughs> now why didn't your dad tell you that Rather than he wants to get me in trouble
1: probably uh,
0: and We wanted to see their bus. We were enamored by buses. This was early on. This was early in in the beginnings. that We were over there with them. So we asked their bus driver if he'd show us. So he did. He had a foul mouth. We were taken aback by this. He took us down the aisle. It was one of those buses, the old Silverside style, that had a center aisle. was a step down from the seats on both sides. And so... He'd go in, and there were quite a few seats in the front, and then in back of that, they had bunks and closets for each bunk. Well, he started opening these closet doors, and there were pinups of scantily clad ladies, and we were not laughing. On the way out, he showed us something. I forget what he called it, but he opened a door, and there was a funnel that led to the, to the street, And whenever they had to urinate, they would open that door, and and it would just go down and hit the street. And so all of us knew what was happening to anybody who was following them. I think that that experience changed our ministry. I, for one, came away from that thinking, well, if that's the way it is, I'm not so sure I want to do this.
1: When I was around the music industry in Nashville, Tennessee, I remember there was a a common pattern that was conveyed to me that the people who tried to make it in Los Angeles in the pop or rock world if they failed they would move to Nashville thinking they could get into country music. Well if that didn't work out they thought well I can get in the Christian music industry because it's the bar is lower and it's they're a lot more forgiving so to speak. So often a lot of people are getting into it who don't have the convictions was that the same in Southern Gospel,
0: do you think? Oh, yeah. It was much more prevalent in those days and before. I mean, these groups, uh, which didn't pay a whole lot, they were just looking for anybody who could sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their personal lives did not line up with the messages. It had a pretty rough reputation, we found out, eventually. But there were two groups really started changing that in the uh, mid 60s and then on into the 70s and it continues until now i think mm-hmm. and that was the happy goodman family and the bill gaither trio they were the real deal and every carlson was a british lady who was a fine christian person very popular and contemporary in ccm in those days The Goodmans and some of them started putting pressure on these other groups to lead lives that lined up with what they were singing about. But still, it steered us in our full-time endeavors more to a church ministry than a concert ministry. Most of our work was done in churches.
1: One thing I've learned that almost in any industry or anything where there is a bit of spotlight on it, you name it, uh, there are groupies or hanger honors. do you feel like in the churches, though I'm sure it still existed, was it to a lesser extent than in the concert halls?
0: Well, possibly, but there was some of that going on even in the church settings. But one just has to decide what he or she is going to be, and that's all there is to it. I mean, especially when we went full-time, I felt that we had some people kind of hanging on, but that just wasn't who we were. Our models were the Couriers from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They were one of the uh, early groups on the Gospel Singing Jubilee. And, and for most of us in the group, I liked the Goodmans, but all of us loved the Couriers because they did stuff that was actually difficult to do right. and not the same old stuff. i my faith and the were terrific and they they lived the life and they were our models we still love them to this day I know that Ronnie is a heavy contributor for them they're just classy guys that's always to it <laughs> spent the battle of Jerry Cole, Jerry just Jerry the battle of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling
1: down. Can you explain how the collegiates eventually became the Good Time singers?
0: Well, your dad and Steve Gerbig left about the same time. Well your dad, I think, went into the service. And Steve, I think, wanted to have a family. And so at that point, For one thing, we were were mightily impressed with the courier. So we thought, why can't we do that too? Because Clyde was such a good singer. So we just said, let's not get another singer. Let's just do the three of us. And so uh, Ronnie and Clyde and I began singing. And we couldn't keep that name because we weren't collegiate age anymore. And and we didn't feel that that was at all commercial. And we thought and thought and thought... uh, we actually changed the name of the group to The Times at first, which was silly, too. Um, <laughs> and then it eventually landed on The Good Times Singers, and Clyde Ronnie and I, in uh, 68 and 69, made two albums before we went on the road full-time. Uh, those two albums were made, were the first of many at uh, Benson Sound in Oklahoma City. I had been disenchanted with Ray Harris for a long time. And somehow I got a hold of a recording of a family group from Illinois who had made this album at Benson Sound. And I loved the sound and the musicianship. When we'd gone to Crusade, we'd just get a bunch of musicians in the room along with us. Everybody would just do his or her own thing, and everybody was playing over each other, and there was really no thought given to fills in the right spots and so forth, and so sometimes it just sounded like a mess. But Benson uh, had been with the Imperials. He had gotten a lot of uh, training experience in, while he lived in Nashville, so that was a decision that I never regretted
1: what a hallelujah
0: morning when the last trump of god shall sound
1: i'll have a new body praise the lord i'll have a new life
0: he had some top-notch musicians there and they got better as the years went by he, for one thing he didn't let clyde play on the sessions he played the piano and always directed those sessions and he's a genius and still is
1: do you think that that hurt Clyde's feelings
0: at first he didn't know how to take it but he understood once we got there and got into the session and we saw his expertise then uh, we didn't have any trouble after that we were doing two tracks then and 68 but at least he was able to get all the musicians on one track and us on the other track then the second album we made there was, and then it was four-track. That was even better. In fact, one of the songs on there we stacked four times. It was a big sound. Thereafter, all of our recordings, well, with the exception of a couple we made in Nashville, which were entirely forgettable, all of the rest of them were at least 16 tracks, and then it went up from there. I want to go home with that man, to my tattered soul ready today getting ready today move out to say goodbye gonna say to sorrow. the third album was actually recorded at the Goodman studio in Madisonville it's called I'll have a new life
1: now the Goodman family owned that studio but were they involved at all
0: oh yeah yeah they were in there they had a they had hired an engineer they brought in uh, wonderful musicians for that They had Eddie Crook was on piano And Ricky Capps they Brought him in from Nashville And two or three other Nashville pickers That they knew I've been on the mountain I've seen the other side I've been on the mountain And my soul is satisfied
1: I've had my heart trials My valley's dark and drear But I've been on the mountain Things look oh so different there when did you all start writing your own material?
0: Well, we started trying to do that once we started thinking about g- going full-time. Clyde was probably the most prolific. He brought several songs to the group that he had written. Then Ronnie uh, started writing, and my way of thinking, he, he really did some fine songs. And then I, along the way, I tried to, to write some things also. Which were mostly unforgettable. Uh, Forgettable, I should
1: say. Forgettable, not unforgettable. I have to admit, like, when I listened to your records, I never did really look and see who wrote this or that. But one song that stands out to me, and I I said this to Ronnie, one that made me actually go look to see who wrote it because it was so good, was I'll take a little more of that, which was written by yourself.
0: Amazing grace, the word of God, a mansion in the sky. The streets of gold, a river of life, it's all up there on the high. The burning cake's a resting place, so I just gotta get up there. It's all in the book, I took the look, and I'll take a little more of that. That song was written, uh, you know, a lot of it is just uh, old courses. I wrote it at a district council meeting in Milwaukee, and there was a speaker there. He was talking about some things being old-fashioned and at some point, I think he used a phrase like that. If that's what they call old-fashioned, I'll take a little more of that, or something like that. And I just started penciling stuff on a piece of paper or something. It was one of those, what we call drivers. It's just a fast song that usually gets the audience involved. Kind of like the old um, Mosey Lister song, I'm Feeling Fine, and some of the other faster songs that are upbeat, but... That was a, a driver for us, and it sold quite a few uh, recordings. I never understood why, but... If that's what you call old-fashioned, brother, I'll take a little more of that. If that's what he says, how dated, sister, I believe that that's where it's at. The word of God is not an old man, way his ways are kind to true. So call it old-fashioned, if you want your brother, I'll take a little more of that. Through the years, I've learned, though, that some of those songs are gimmicks later when i was the soloist i recorded a song for instance called the preachers on fire mm. and it's a silly little gimmicky song but those sometimes prove to be the songs that people remember and that they want to hear and it sells recordings yeah. there's another one called front seat back seat that i recorded and it irritated me a little bit that they want <laughs> to remember some of the songs with the richer lyrics you know Mm -hmm. but that's just the way it is and I figured well if it gets them to buy the record and they listen to other messages but that wasn't always the case and sometimes once people listen through to those things they'll they'll pick out songs that really do truly minister to them rather than just tickling their fancies and two I told myself people need to laugh Christians need to enjoy themselves there's enough heartache and sorrow in the world. So I justified it that way, too. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night, night or noon. Many will, many meet, will meet their, their due. The COVID will die.
1: songs that you've written which one are you the most proudest of <laughs>
0: there's one that, that I wrote this completely out, it's out of meter but I get comments on it it's a song called uh, I have more I like the harmonies in that I'm not acquainted with the things of this world today I don't have great wealth
1: or fortune when I talked to Ronnie, he said that uh, there came a time where he had to leave for family reasons, and I think Clyde left also at some point, point. and again, according to Ronnie, uh, that's when the group became even more successful. Is that how you remember it?
0: Well, that's, in some respects, that's true. Ronnie was the first one to to step out. The first two years were really difficult financially. I had done my best as far as promotion is concerned. In fact, to get the group off the ground, we didn't have email, any of the social stuff, you know, back in the 60s, you know that. Right. Uh, the only way could get any kind of attention was by mailing stuff to people or running ads in newspapers or what have you. So we did a mass mailing and I had the bright idea of getting a a little sack, almost like a popcorn sack. We addressed that to thousands of churches in the Midwest, particularly in the Midwest and East. And on the outside I'd stamped it with a stamp that said, It's in the bag and on the inside <laughs> sounds kinda of silly now. They'd pull out this rather slick brochure at the time. That talk about having a great evening with the Good Time Singers, and that it included a postage paid card that they could send back to me if they were interested. It wasn't feasible economically to send a, a record, we just didn't have the dollars. That got a lot of return from all these churches. The trouble was, is that. Somebody in Richmond, Virginia would want us on Wednesday night, and then somebody in Michigan would want us on Thursday night, and somebody in Kansas would want us, you know. So there was, there was no cohesiveness. So we were running all over the country just trying to keep the wolves away from the door. We were sort of still in that, but I had learned something along the way. We managed to get into a, a district council where there were a lot of preachers. They let us sing for that. And I literally had people lined up down the hall to schedule the group. This was in Wisconsin. And they were all in the same state. So I was born at night, but not last night. And so uh, the bulb went off, and I got this district superintendent. I said, would you be willing to recommend Ness to other districts? So he did, and the same thing happened there. And we'd go and sing for free to these councils and getaways and various conferences and camp meetings because we would sell a lot of recordings and get all of those bookings, and I could keep them in different states. So one year, we we did about 60 dates in Wisconsin and northern Michigan alone, which is a lot. That started adding up, and that had started to pile on about the time that, Ronnie and Clyde stepped out. So that when Dan and Greg came on, we hit the road running and we didn't look back. In fact, we reached the point that we became too busy, really, for our own good. Uh, We were out for 250 days a year. So we kind of, I think, kind of burned out a little bit. That can happen so easily. And you don't realize what you have until it's gone, Tim.
1: Sure. Uh,
0: And Ronnie realizes that. And I, I mean... For me, it was when that second group left the road, it was like a death in the family because I had put all of my life into that music group. That's when I went on the road as a soloist. But um, we never missed a paycheck uh, with that second group, and we made, you know, it was not a lot of money, but fairly decent money for that time. I'm going home to be with Jesus, yes, I will never look back to this world anymore. I'll Down over on the other shore. When my feet touch down over on the other shore. I moved to Minnesota, to the Twin Cities, in 1984 and took a position there. I finally finished. My doctorate in 1993, from '77 until '93, I was a soloist. I did traveling all over the country using all of those contacts that I had with the group. And I was teaching school, and we'd, we'd have the summers off in Charlotte, and I'd go all over the country. But I finally finished my doctorate in 1993, and I had told her that I wanted to put another singing group together. So I put a trio together while I was in Minneapolis-St. Paul in 93 and that lasted for about, uh, oh, 10, 11 years. It was a part-time, but a very busy part-time group. The name of that group is Tribute. You are
1: Can you think of any moments that made all your trouble and your effort worth it all? I remember there was this
0: church in Overland Park, Kansas, where we would go and hold revivals. We had two or three of them there. This was with Ronnie and Clyde at the beginning. and We would go, and I remember when we were there, we had made friends with a lot of young people. The group would sing, and then I would just give a, a short message at the end. And we'd always do an altar call, and... I remember one night that the altars were just lined with young people and there were... I looked down and I saw two or three or four drops, teardrops, on the altar. That stuck with me as a reminder of what we were doing and why we did it. Some of those, they were kids in that day, some of those people are still acquaintances of mine, I hear from them. I just got a call the other day from a young man who's living in Dallas, Texas. His dad pastored in Yoncala, Oregon, It's a little old town out there where Charlotte and I went two or three times. And I get calls like this just every little whip stitch, but he had the albums and wanted to know if he could get any copies of them because he remembered those albums, even though I wouldn't think that'd be his style. Some of them were pretty hokey, but <laughs> uh, those are a couple of good memories. A lot of fun times, too. We laughed a lot.
1: In the Corner Back by the Wood Pile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name spuncounterguy. Counter Guy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app, hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone and we are now on iTunes just do a search for back by the woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up and a special thanks to the one, one day to
0: the shore.